Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, January 11th. A quick editing note before we get into today's show. Super producer Daniel Westoff is finally taking a well-deserved vacation. In fact, he and Crack Racket CEO Dalton Thieneman are off to Mexico to celebrate the bachelor party of one of their dear friends from college. As such, every podcast on our Crack Rackets channels over the course of the next few days will be posted unedited by our super producer. What does that mean for all of you listeners? Well, it means I'm going to try to be on my best behavior, try to limit my swearing so as to not burden all of your listeners' ears with it. Of course, it also means we're not going to have sound effects. We're not going to have our intro, outro music that our super producer so beautifully incorporates onto every episode. That said, just because the episodes will be unedited does not mean they will be slowing down in their frequency. As we are well aware, things are busy across levels in the tennis world right now. Not only do I have five events going on that I want to discuss on today's show, but we've got the first major right around the corner. The 2023 Australian Open is less than one week away. And as we always do here at Cracked Rackets, we want to preview the year's first major from each and every angle. If you head over to our Great Shot podcast feed, you can see the first of our multiple conversations breaking down the top contenders for the men's and women's singles titles. We'll talk about the dark horses. We'll analyze the prospects of the Americans. We'll break down the draws when they're released as well. All those things planned for the next few days. They'll all be available over on the Great Shot podcast feed. And then it's also worth mentioning we launched a new podcast here at Crack Rackets, or at least a new season, season two of the Inside Out podcast now officially underway. I am thrilled to say I'll be joined by Gil Gross to break down every episode of the upcoming Netflix docuseries Breakpoint, a series which follows multiple ATP and WTA players throughout the course of their 2020. 22 seasons. Of course, that series is supposed to offer an intimate look at the life of a top ATP or WTA player. It's supposed to show not only the struggles they go through on the court, but the struggles they go through off the court as well. And certainly we are all excited as a tennis community for that series to be released. I know I am thrilled to get to talk about every episode with my dear friend Gil Gross. That content available again in podcast form on the Inside Out podcast channel available in video form over on Gil's YouTube channel. So be on the lookout for all of that content. Great Shot Podcast, Inside Out episodes, of course, this show as well. We're going to be rocking and rolling even with super producer Daniel Westhoff being on vacation. That said, again, he's on vacation. We're not. We got five events to talk about here on today's mini break podcast. I want to set the scene once again for what's happening in Adelaide, in Hobart, in Auckland, and of course at the Australian Open qualifying event. Look, I'm not going to dive too far into the weeds. Do we need to talk about 15-30 points in second sets in a second-week match with a Grand Slam around the corner? Maybe not, but I want to talk about trends as, again, these are the last few practice runs before the year's first major begins. Certainly when you look in Adelaide, on the women's side, the draws have been loaded. They do feel like previews of what we might see in the second week of the Australian Open, and as such, I want to talk about the trends I've seen. A couple of players who have 
have played well now over multiple weeks. Danielle Collins, Belinda Bencic, Beatrice Haddad Maya. We'll get into each of them, talk about how the rest of the field has performed in Adelaide. We see some struggles continuing. Andre Rublev, a second consecutive first round loss, although. We're going to be glass half full on that match because what we continue to learn is it's just Tenassi's town. Tenassi Kokonakis, whenever he plays in his home country of Australia, seems to bring his best tennis. And it's a thrill to watch as a fan, certainly a thrill to watch as an analyst who gets to talk about all these matches every day on this show. I want to talk about that match here on today's show. And I suppose in that case, I'll get into the tactics of how Tenassi was able to succeed, but... Look, there's some fun stuff in Adelaide, too. Maybe not as fun on the men's side as the women's, but certainly Draper Hatchinoff Part 3. That feels like a big opportunity for the young British player, Jack Draper. We'll get into everything else as well. And Hobart, I think I'm ready to predict a Sonia Kennan title run. And it would that be better for her than winning a couple of matches at the Australian Open? That's something we can discuss again here on today's show. But I want to talk about Kennan and the rest of a field that... I think can best be described as low ceilings, high floors. And that high floor sort of guarantees we'll get good tennis throughout the course of the weekend. Maybe not great tennis, but I think we're going to get good tennis out of Hobart. And certainly after having an absence of tennis over the last few weeks, good tennis is valued tennis here on this show. So I want to break down Hobart. want to talk about Auckland, Cam Norrie versus the rest of the field at this point. Tennis abstract certainly feels like Norrie is the prohibitive favorite. And then, of course, Australian Open qualities, less so than breakdown tactics. I want to talk about the notable winners, who you should be afraid of or who you should be aware of, perhaps, is the better adjective heading into, again, the reveal of the Australian Open main draw. All that planned here for today's mini break podcast feed. Again, unedited, dare I say, unburdened by super producer Daniel Westhoff and I suppose the benefit for all of you listeners, at least until Westoff goes back and fixes things, is that you're only going to have to deal with one ad read on that sh- on this show, and that ad read is coming right now as it's – I have to give a shout-out. And by the way, every time I stumble with words, every time I sneeze, every time I cough, sadly – We're going to have to leave that in today because that's another thing I'm going to be burdened by given the absence of super producer Daniel Westhoff. So I don't even have to say Westhoff, leave it in my bad English in the lead up to this tennis point plug, but leave it in super producer Daniel Westhoff as of course I have to give a shout out to our dear friends at tennis point, the lifeblood of this show without whom we would not be able to cover everything that happens day in day out. Of course, tennis point provides equipment to every player of every level and it's the best equipment at the lowest prices. And again, you name it, rackets, strings, shoes, clothing, pickleball, materials, you name it, they've got it. One location, tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off all sale items. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. By the way, unlike me, you don't have to feel guilty if you have a fondness for pickleball. Racket sports are racket sports, and people who play racket sports like playing racket sports. You're not going to hold ping pong a love of ping pong against someone who plays tennis, are you? But for pickleball, you're going to have this vast resentment. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to Tennis Point either. That's why they provide all racket sports equipment at the best prices, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. 
With that said, as we have in just about every episode through this first week and a half of the 2023 season, I want to start today's show on the women's side in Adelaide because I mentioned this is the last practice run we have prior to the start of the year's first slam. Well, these first two weeks in Adelaide have felt like a practice run, and certainly the quality of the field. I mentioned it yesterday. At one point, 22 of the top 33 players in the WTA live rankings were entered into Adelaide 2. The numbers were certainly in the mid to high teens for Adelaide 1 as well. You saw what a dominant arena Sabalenka can do against testy players like Von Drusova and Samsonova, where she had to overcome a lead. The talented big hitter in Naskova this week. You've seen fun head-to-heads between players like Kudermatova and Azarenka, Anisimova, and Samsonova, Kvitova, and Rabakina. It's felt like a serious practice run for the later stages of the year's first major, and it certainly has delivered exciting tennis, and I think significant tennis for anyone who's trying to offer an outlook at what the year's first slam might look like, and again, Of course, we're overreacting. There's only two weeks of tennis to look at as we prepare for the Australian Open. But given the quality of the field, given how frequently we discuss how short the offseason is, and I do think if there's any benefit of the lack of offseason, it's the fact that these players are able to sustain a relatively high form through that offseason and able to sustain enough match play to be close to the levels that they were at to end 2022, if not slightly better, with the additional six weeks of rest. I think the trends that we see are significant, as I've argued throughout the course of these past week, uh, week and a half of episodes. And again, with that theme in mind, who has impressed me? in Adelaide this week. A first look at a couple of significant players uh, certainly starting things out. Let's go with Belinda Bencic, who, of course, we got to see play two matches during United Cup, but only two matches. She went 6-3 and three over Putenseva, got off to a slow start, but pulled away as that match progressed, won over 50% of both her first and second serves. It was over 70% on the first serve. I thought she then played Iga really well in a 3-6 and six loss in that second United Cup match. And look, you're going to have to beat Iga if you want to win the Australian Open. In my opinion, the road clearly runs through her, as I argued with David Gertler on our Women's Contenders Great Shot podcast preview. But Benchich played her well. She adjusted well in the second set. She was able to you know, win over half of her service games, which I know doesn't sound like much, but for Aniga Sviantek, who's breaking 51.1% of the time over the last 52 weeks, that is mission accomplished. You got her to a second set breaker, and Bencic plays with enough certainty. She's definitive in her shot choices. She is decisive in her aggression. You know, she... Even if it's not the most advantageous position, she's well aware of the mindset you have to go down against. Uh, you have to go down swinging against Iga because if you're just trying to out physical her with all due respect, maybe the best version of Coco Golf is capable of it, but. I don't think it's possible right now for any WTA player to outgrind Iga Sviantek if you don't have a weapon to at least pressure her with as well. And look, Bencic had the weapons to pressure her with. And then you look for her this week, 3-4 and four over Muguruza. She doesn't face a break point. 3-3 three and three win over Kalinskaya. She got off to a fast start, actually, to start the second set. But then there was a lull, and Kalinskaya made a run and almost leveled things at 3-all, almost took a lead uh, with a late break there in set number two. But Bencic hit 
hit a couple of big first serves. Again, she went over 77% of her first serve points. By the way, it's the third time she's played Kalinskaya in the last six months. No secret between these two. But more impressive than anything for me continues to be Belinda Bencic's movement over the course of this past year. And she's really been healthier than she's ever been in her career. And look, she's 43-18. and 18. She's winning 70% of her matches for a year consecutively. That matches her career-high win percentage from 2019, where she went 49-21. and 21. And, you know, over these last 52 weeks, she's 43-18. and 18. And I know last year she struggled at the majors, didn't make it to a single second week, but she had better results everywhere else than she ever had in her career. You look for her against opponents ranked outside the top 20. She was 38 and 13, a respectable four and five against top 20 opponents as well. And look, has a big matchup coming up against Caroline Garcia. You want to be taken as a contender, beat Garcia, who... You know, Benchich finished fourth on the WTA Tour in 2022 in hold percentage. She was at 77.8% of the time. Garcia was at number one at 81.2. And Garcia is the number one server. She's the WTA Tour finalist champion. She is a top-tier contender on paper, certainly, entering the 2023 Australian Open and has the sort of weapons, plays with the sort of aggression that typically Bencic has struggled with, as she is not an elite mover, and she wants to be on her front foot. She wants to be the one dictating. She needs to be the one with the bigger weapons. Look, Bencic is hitting the slice serve out wide, and then the first ball, backhand cross or forehand down the line to the open court exceptionally well right now. Every time she gets a look at a backhand, her ability to hold her ground, even if she's slightly behind the baseline, but to get her momentum moving forward through her backhand is exceptional. If you give her time on the forehand, yes, it's a bigger backswing and extreme grip, but you're never quite sure where she's going to go with the ball, and she can hit it both heavy and flat. Her swinging volley is exceptional, and it does take time away, and it helps her Again, defend her less than ideal defensive movement, but she's gotten better at the defense, and she put a ton of returns in play against Kalinskaya, who doesn't have the biggest serve, but again, wasn't that able to pressure Bencic. Muguruza wasn't able to pressure Bencic that consistently. Yes, she lost to Iga at United Cup, but good wins over Putin Seva, over Muguruza, over, uh, over excuse me, Kalinskaya as well, and you know, again, hasn't dropped a set in her victories on the year. So I think this is a very interesting match for her against Garcia, and she's 1-0 against Garcia in her career. Actually, Tennis Abstract has her as a 53.1% favorite. She wins that match. I will be discussing her in my WTA Dark Horse conversation, and not just a dark horse to make a run, but perhaps even a dark horse to win the freaking title. That said, she's been one of the impressive players I've seen thus far. I also have to give a shout-out to Danielle Collins. And you look for Collins, who last week you know, got knocked out 5-7-6-2-6-3 against Elena Rabakina, faced 17 break points in the match. I think she only created like two for herself, and I think they both came in set number one. But Collins has been excellent in her two straight set victories in Adelaide, 2-4 and four over Pliskova, 3-6 and six over Teichman. She's winning over 70% of her first serves, and she made less than 50% of them against Teichman, but when she gets to look at a first strike, you're just losing the point because her ability to move the ball around the court from the baseline, the backhand is elite right now, and I know I talk a lot about good backhands. Benchich is in that conversation, but Danielle Collins' ability to rope the ball down the line to rope it cross court, but like Taylor Fritz, get outside that ball with her hands and create angle without compromising her drive or pace. I mean, she had Teichman on a string 
and the heavy lefty topspin that Teichman hit into that backhand wing, it just allowed Daniel Collins to flatten that shot out and hit it with that much more drive, hit it with that much more chutzpah. She moved the ball exceptionally well. She continues to take the return extraordinarily well. And, you know, again, I'm all in on this version of Danielle Collins, who, when healthy, has consistently been a top 10 player. I mean, she freaking won, or excuse me, made the Australian Open final last year. I don't need to make the argument. I don't think it's that difficult of an argument, excuse me, for me to even make here on today's show. But she looks healthy. She looks fit. The first serve is clicking well right now. The second serve is still a lollipop, and of course there will be power players, much like that Sabalenka U.S. Open round of 16 match last year, who just can overwhelm her with elite power because Collins, while a decent mover, is not a great mover. I think her and Benchich are in a similar category, but boy, Collins plays with a decisiveness that is so compelling, and that's why I'm very much looking forward to seeing how she handles the big first serve, big first strike game of Kudermatova in the quarterfinals. Of course, Kudermatova advanced via a withdrawal. Kvitova wins the first set 7-6, then Jung Chin Wen, who played a very physical first match against Shelby Rogers, played physical matches in Adelaide 1 as well, hopefully just resting, you know, in uh, pulling out of the match after that 7-6 first set. Uh, in, as a preventative measure more than anything else. But Kvitova advances. She'll take on Kasakina, who knocks Krachikova out of the dark horse conversation after uh, Kasakina gets her 2-5 and five in that round two match. But look, Kvitova, that should be, that should be again, a Thanksgiving feast for Kvitova to just swing freely at that service return. Some of the hanging lollipops Kasakina will offer. Oh, that kick serve into the Kvitova forehand. It could be a tough day for Kasakina, who's 0-1 in her career against Kvitova. And again, if Kvitova takes care of business as she should, I already named her a top contender. You can go here or where on the list, again, on the Great Shot podcast feed. But that's a fun one. Bedosa's got a real test, and she had a tough one against Kanepi. Kanepi played big, was just too inconsistent. The physicality of Bedosa wins out, but Beatrice Haddad Maya is locked in right now. And Haddad Maya's ability to move the ball around the court, much like Danielle Collins, it's not as heavy of a ball, there's not as much drive, but she gets outside the ball a little bit better. Obviously, she's a lefty, so the angles that she produces heavy, you know, she's heavier on the ad side, which you're not accustomed to. And Still hits it pretty well with angle on the backhand wing. Also, she's comfortable moving forward. I mean, she just was so consistent with her first ball. What was a really impressive 4-5 and win over Anisimova? And look, Anisimova had moments. She came out strong in set number two. When she had her feet set, her ability to drive the ball down the line, absorb pace, absorb heaviness. I mean, she has the size. She has the physicality to drive through the ball. She has the pace. She just wasn't fit enough in this match. She couldn't handle the consistent pressure that Haddad Maya put on her movement, stretching her to the outer thirds, forcing her to have to recover, change direction. Haddad Maya was really precise in the way she attacks. And again, Haddad Maya is not a top 10 server. She's not a top 10 returner, but she's a top 20 server, and she's a top 30 returner. She's pretty good at everything. Everything is measured. Everything is calculated. Again, I'm very excited to watch her take on Bedosa. And look, according to Tennis Abstract right now, it's a pick You know, Kvitova, 20.1% favorite to win going into the quarterfinals. But then it's Benchich, 16-3. Bedosa, 13-9. Collins, 13-6. Garcia, 12-9. You know, the lowest is Haddad Maya at 4-7. That's not that far behind Kvitova's 201 
it, it's still anyone's game in Adelaide, and that's why this is a dry run, the last practice run for the 2023 Australian Open, because these are the sort of matches you're probably going to have to win two, three, maybe even four of to win the year's first major, and I am fascinated to see all these players, excuse me, have to leave that in, I apologize, that's the burden of no Daniel Westhoff, but I'm fascinated to see these players battle it out, and again, Semifinals are going to be here. Uh, excuse me, quarterfinals are going to be Wednesday night, so that's Thursday in Australia. I believe championship matches are slated for Sunday. I, most of these players will get at least one day off before the start of Australia, and it's the first event of the year, so I don't imagine there's going to be too much wear and tear on any of these players should they make a deep run in Adelaide. That is why I'm valuing the action happening on the WTA side of things there. Of course, I'm also valuing the ATP side of things as it is one of those joint site events in Adelaide this week. Let's talk about the draw and the significant results we've seen thus far there. The place we probably have to start with is Tenassi Kokonakis. And of course, the story of Tenassi Kokonakis reached the Junior Australian Open final, was a top junior in the world. And you know, has struggled with so many different injuries throughout the course of his career thus far. Now, he's still only 26 years old, turns 27 in April, and, you know, has always been electric whenever he's had the opportunity to step on court. The most notable win, the Federer win in Miami, I think that was, what, 2016 or 17, sometime around there. And, you know, we've seen him have success when he has been healthy, most notably, you know, he made a run to the Los Cabos final in 2017. And then last year, he wins the Adelaide 2 title and fully has, you know, a guy who has always embraced that opportunity to play in front of a home crowd. You look for him in his career uh, at the Australian Open. You know, he hasn't made a second week run, but you look at the matches that he has played, played a really fun four-setter with Medvedev back in 2018, played a really fun five-setter with Tsitsipas back in 2021, a second-round match there. Uh, Obviously wins Adelaide uh, last year, and look, this is just a guy who clearly benefits uh, from playing in front of a home crowd, maybe more so than anyone not named Francis Tiafo. And I mean, again, you look for Kokonakis, uh, who with the title points falling off of his record, he's down to number 181 right now in the live rankings. You look for Tenassi overall, uh, again, last season, didn't have the best year getting to play primarily an ATP schedule. Kokonakis, 23-19 and 19 overall. You look for him in first-round matches. Kokonakis went 6-10, and 10, uh, including a first-round loss at the challenger level. But, I mean, he played a lot of matches close last season, whether it was the four-set loss to Ramos at Roland Garros, of course. Uh, he lost a really fun three-set match to Sinner in Cincinnati, a really fun first-round match against Kyrgios in the U.S. Open, even if it was only in straight sets. Again, we know what Tenasi Konokanakis is capable of. You look at some of the top 50 wins he's had in his career. Eight top 50 wins, including the win I mentioned. He beat Milos Raonic in Queens Club. He beat uh, let's see, Max Cressy. Oh, excuse me, I'm looking at first matches. I was like, he has to do better than this. 21 top 50 victories in his career. You look for him against the top 20. Beat Federer in Miami. Beat Burdich in Los Cabos. Rayonic in Queens Club. Schwartzman in Miami last year. And now uh, gets his sixth top 20 win with a three-set victory over Andre Rublev. And, you know, what was most impressive is Kokonakis faced one break point throughout the course of the match. Now, he was broken on it in the second set, but he was so decisive 
with his first strike. And that's what you have to do against an Andre Rublev. That's what you have to do against a Taylor Fritz as well. Two guys who have gotten a lot better with their movement, but they are not at their, they are not fluid players. They are not their most flexible players. They are not players who want to be hitting on the run improvising, being defensive. No, they want to have their feet set. They want to be the one dictating, which obviously sounds simple, but you know that's the difference between elite and very good. Elite not only wants to be dictating, but then when it's Djokovic on the run, Nadal on the run, some of these other guys, that's when they're exceptional as well, is when they have that ability to improvise. Other guys can improvise exceptionally, think Davidovich Fokina, but what's plan A? What's plan B for him to just win points consistently? You don't know what that is. You know what plan A is for Rublev. Big serve, followed up with forehands dictating around the court. And for the majority of the match, outside of the second set, where you could tell Kokonakis got a little winded and Rublev was able to find his front foot, Kokonakis took that plan A away from Rublev. He, in lieu of, you know, he only sliced the backhand in the second set. Other than that, he decided to take full swings, go big down the line, rather miss big than just know you're at, you're, you're dying if you leave that ball neutral in the center against Rublev. And, you know, something we've always known about Tanasi Kokonak is he's got big time weapons. He's got big time strength. Like he's not the most fluid mover, but he's a good athlete. He is not you know, it's like Rublev. The move, uh, the movement's pretty similar between the two of them. Neither want to be on the run, but both of them are capable of doing it. But Kokonakis served extraordinarily well, made 63% of his first serves, won 86% of his first serve points. Again, faced only one break point in the match. Hit the first forehand all over the court, inside out, inside in. Followed it forward very comfortably. He's a great volleyer, case in point, Australian Open doubles champion last year. He just has top 50 weapons, and if he can stay healthy, stay consistent, you know, again, get back into the top 100, play the February schedule, indoor hard courts in Europe or outdoors in Mexico, wherever he wants to go, it's an advantageous portion of the calendar for Kokonaka should he be able to get back inside the top 100, and I believe he is in the main draw of the 2023 Australian Open as such. Look, if he gets a good draw... Second round, third round. I don't think he's a second-week guy, but I think he can rack up a couple of wins. I think he can get back to the top 100 by the end of this Australia, and certainly, again, to get back up to number 181 by making another quarterfinal here in Adelaide. That's a massive success. You look for him in his career at the ATP level. Tanasi Kokonakis into a quarterfinal for a uh, sixth time. Three of them have come in Adelaide. Two of them have come in Los Cabos. The other on clay in Geneva. He's a Mexico player and Australia player. He likes that heat, baby. And, uh, yeah, you can understand why, because those weapons fly through the air, uh, certainly on these Adelaide courts. So credit to him. The flip side, obviously, you look for Andre Rublev, back-to-back losses to start his season. Glass half full. They were both three sets. They were to a guy in Roberto Bautista Agu, who is a top 25 player in the world. You're not going to see him to the third, fourth round earliest at the Australian Open. The other two, Tanasi Kokonakis, who again had a perfect serving match against Rublev and does have the sort of elite weapons that can make Rublev particularly uncomfortable, has the sort of strength to deal with the heaviness of the Andre Rublev ball, which you're just not going to see for the majority of the first two rounds, which in theory would allow Andre Rublev to play himself into shape. I also think Glass Half Full... Rublev won over 76% of his first serve points in each of the matches that he played. He made over 60% of his first serves in each match. You look at a guy who has often struggled with that first serve percentage. I thought the first serve was landing pretty well. 
The second serve was tentative, and in each match, he won fewer than 45% of his second serve points. Those second serves, his opponents knew to attack to get Rublev on the defensive. Obviously, they want to attack the backhand corner, but each of Bautista Gutinesi Kokonak is particularly well-suited with their inside-in forehands to keep Rublev honest. Uh, both of his opponents played well. I think this is a Conteve situation where I, yes, I would have loved Rublev to get a win in one of these matches, I think the crowd did a really good job of getting the best tennis out of Kokonakis. I think the first match where Rublev's up a set and a break, you know, I think it was 6-4-2-1. That's the one against RBA he probably wants back more than the Kokonakis match where Tenassi just didn't provide opportunities because he found the big 130-mile-per-hour first serves whenever. I'm not concerned about Rublev's level entering the Australian Open. He's not a Tier 1 guy. He's Tier 2. You know, Maybe you knock him down to Tier 3. You're not 100% confident he's going to get to the round of 16. I don't know what his draw is. If Kord is the seed, I'd get nervous. But I feel pretty good that Andre Rublev is going to be in the round of 16 at the 2023 Australian Open, despite his two first match losses here in 2023. With that said, again, Kokonakis now advancing to take on Miamir Kesmenovic, who ends a really fun run of wildcard Jason Kubler, who's just a great athlete out there on court. Uh, and certainly, again, played a really fun match. Uh, three sets, Kesmenovic advances. Kesmenovic has a ton of quarterfinals to defend coming up over the course uh, of the next two months, given how hot he was to start last season. So Kasmanovic kind of needs it, given right now. Kasmanovic, new career high, number 27. But again, he's going to lose those Australian Open points from last year in about a week. So it will be interesting uh, to see where Kasmanovic, you know, again, he needs this run. And it's a very winnable match for him against a Kokonakis that has to be tired after three sets against Popper and three sets against Rublev as well. Battle of the Spaniards in your other quarterfinal happening uh, in that top half of the draw. And I want to get into everything else going on in Adelaide too. Roberto Bautista Agu, good win to kick off his Adelaide, a three-setter over Robin Hassa. Now, I'm aware Robin Hassa has not been much of a story in the ATP Top 100 over the past year and a half, two years, maybe even three, but still for RBA, who lost second round last week, it's early in the season, you sweat out a three-set win, you serve pretty well throughout the course of the match, you know, had had some struggles finding his rhythm as a returner, but you want to get those struggles out of the way in the first two weeks, and that's why I'm actually very much interested in seeing his matchup against Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, because those are two guys who you just don't want to deal with in the first week of a slam. Davidovich Fokina has made multiple second weeks, and he's looked really good this week. First round win over Nakashima in straight, second round win just was disciplined once again against John Milman, who did not have the weapons to consistently pressure Davidovich Fokina, and look, He's going to have to bring that discipline against RBA. You cannot give RBA free points. You can't be lulled into his patterns of being baited into challenging his on-the-run forehand, which is one of the best on the ATP Tour. Davidovich Fokina, RBA 1-1 one one in the career head-to-head. RBA 68.8% favorite according to Tennis Abstract. Both of those guys can make the second week. This feels like, again, a dry run for round number three of the 2023 Australian Open. You look at the bottom half of the draw. It's Draper Hatchinov part three. Hatchinov, the win at the U.S. Open when Draper was forced to retire just as that match was getting competitive. Hatchinov beat him very comfortably in straight sets last week. 
I'm interested in this match for two reasons. One, Hatchinov's looked pretty good. I know he lost in straights to Medvedev. I think he played a bad match tactically. I thought he actually executed what he was trying to do very well. I just think he should have taken the first serve a little bit earlier, been more willing to move forward. That said, he's striking the backhand well. He wins three, uh, four and four against the big serving mark, Andre Hussler. He should have won that second set 6-2. He had millions of breakpoint chances in the second. But he's hitting the backhand well. He's hitting the forehand well on the run, with which with his extreme grip and big backswing hasn't always been a feature. And he gave it to Draper last time when they played last weekend. Look for Draper, good wins over Sanego, over Tommy Paul in straight sets. The lefty was outstanding, one of nine players to rank top 25 in the top 50 in both hold and break percentage last season. Now, that includes a lot of challenger success, but he actually still has those numbers when you you filter out the challenger success. And the lefty has weapons, the big serve, the big forehand, a willingness to move forward. He doesn't miss his backhand as a rally ball. It's really hard to beat a player two times in a row. That's what Hatchinoff has to do. If Hatchinoff does that, He's a low-key dark horse, not a guy to win the event, but maybe he goes into another quarterfinal or a semifinal like we saw him do at the U.S. Open. If Draper wins, I think he's a dark horse to make the second week, even if he's unseated. I think he's a dark horse there anyways, but maybe even do some second-week damage because, again, if he makes the adjustments from last week's battle, that's what I'm looking for from the young player in this one. And then a battle between two guys who are just tough outs. Michael Emer might be a better mover than any other player on the ATP Tour. And there's just more pace to his backhand than you expect. Emer, a three-set win over Mackie McDonald to follow up his three-set win over Rusevori. Emer, of course, came through qualifying where he earned a 6-5 and five win over Thompson and a comfortable win over Basilishvili. But look, Emer now into another tour-level quarterfinal. He's up to number 68. Uh, in the live rankings and you know you look for Mikhail Immer who now overall in his career 24 years old he's made the quarterfinals at the tour level now six times in the course of the last 52 weeks he's made it 10 total times now in his career six of the 10 have come in the past year that is called reaching your prime and Look, you have to be extraordinarily confident in your weapons. You have to be decisive in moving forward because if there's any doubt, the speed, the longevity, the flexibility, the creativity, the improvisational skills of Michael Emer is just going to – he's just going to extend the rally. He's just going to make you uncomfortable. There's a lot of Marie Boshkova in Michael Emer in that both of them will be known for their defensive prowess, but both of them can play a little offense if you get tentative. So shout out to Michael Emer into, again, a 10th career ATP Tour quarterfinal where now he's going to take on Sun Wukwan, who knocks out Carreño Busta. Now, I'm not freaking out about Carreño Busta because he looked pretty good in the first set, and it was his first match of the year. But, man, Quan was hitting the forehand big. I was impressed by Quan, who, let's be clear, 25 years old is Sun Wukwan in terms of how many ATP Tour-level quarterfinals he has now made in his career for Quan. Uh, overall, now you look, it is the 11th he's made in his career, second of the past year. He only made one last season, was the end of last year in Tokyo, so good to see him bring that level into Adelaide, too. I don't see Quan making the second week, but maybe he could upset someone special in week number one, as he does here in against Carreño Busta. And what's interesting about Adelaide is much like on the women's side, it's a toss-up according to the Tennis Abstract singles forecast now. The top two seeds have been eliminated, so that makes sense. But right now, RBA, 22.5% favorite, and yet I think he might lose to Davidovich Fokina, who's playing better than him according to the eye test right now. Hatchinov, 22-1. 
Kesmenovic 14.5, Immer 12.8, Draper 12%. Again, Davidovich Fokin is 4.5%. That's not that much lower than the favorite RBA at 22.5. It's going to be a battle in Adelaide, and it's a dual site event. So if you're going to follow any tournament, I think that's the one most bang for your buck through the course of this second week of the year. With that said, again, there are two other tour-level events that I want to touch on this week and then talk about the notable results in Australian Open qualifying. Let's move next to the WTA action happening in Hobart. I'm going to offer what I don't honestly think is a spicy take uh, coming here into week number two, through uh, into the back half of week two. I think Sonia Kennan's going to win the title in Hobart this week. You look at who's remaining in the draw. The highest seed left is Angelina Kalanina, who's a 71.4% favorite to beat Kennan in their quarterfinal matchup coming up on Thursday in uh, in Hobart. Excuse me. But Kennan's played better than her. Kennan, a 2-3 and three win over the rock-solid Marina Zinevska. Zinevska just did not have the weapons to hurt Kennan with, and Kennan had her moving from side to side in the most Ariana Grande of fashions. The weapons looked great in round number one against Ju Lin, who couldn't hurt her. Now, is the best athlete of the three she's faced. She's the most able to absorb, redirect power, and she'll certainly make Kennan uncomfortable in the angles that she generates but boy, she has a serve that Kennan's going to be able to attack. And Kennan is striking the return so cleanly right now. I think the match is on Kennan's terms, on her racket. Kennan's 2-2 two and two against Kalanina in their career. So they've played a couple of times. I think Kennan wins that match. Now, the tough one for her would probably be the semifinals where sixth seed Bernardo Pera is still around. Pera, a three-set win over Laura Siegemund. You know, she's into a much-needed quarterfinal. And you look for Pera, who does not have a ton of points to defend until she has a ton of points to defend come mid-July. She was so good to end last year. What was it? 19-2 and two stretch. She's up to a new career-high ranking of number 41. That gets you into the Miami main draw. That gets you into the Indian Wells main draw. She's going to have the opportunity to pad and solidify her stats and keep herself in the top keep herself in the top 50 even if she can't quite duplicate her second half of last year here this year much needed quarterfinal for Para to just again start padding some points to protect herself she's going to take on Elisabetta Cochiaredo who she's 2-0 against she has the bigger weapons then that said Cochiaredo 52.9% favorite according to tennis abstract I think the weapons of Para, the leftiness, the angle she generates with the pace she generates might make Kennan a little bit more uncomfortable, but I don't hate Kennan there. And then you look at the top half of the draw, like credit to Blinkova, 5-4 and four win over Marie Boshkova, Putensiva, straight set win over Prius as Diaz, straight set win over Claire Liu, but does she have significant weapons to hurt Kennan with? No, I think Kennan being patient, that matches again on her racket. I think the blink of a match is on the Kennan racket. The Lauren Davis match would be on Kennan racket. Wang Xinyu, the talented young player out of China, she has weapons that would probably make Kennan the most uncomfortable, but of course the lucky loser who's into the quarterfinals has to get through Davis and the Putensva uh, blink of a winner, and I believe Wang Xinyu has never competed in a tour-level final in her career, and that in itself would be a whole other burden. Look, Sonia Kennan has not made a tour-level final since the French Open in September of 2020. You look for her last year. She didn't make a single final throughout the course of last year. But straight set wins over Wang Xinyu, by the way, who she beat first round Auckland. Julin Zinevska. I thought she played golf really well in a 4-4 match that had four total breaks of serve within it. 
I'm telling you, Kennan's striking the ball confidently. She's moving well. She's not fully back, but I think she's top 50 back. And to be honest, for Sonia Kennan this week, you look at, you know, where she's at in the rankings. As of right now, Sonia Kennan currently sitting at number 231 in the rankings. She makes the semifinals. She'll jump all the way up to number 203. She wins this title. She would jump all the way up to number 131 in the live rankings. She got a wild card into the Australian Open. Again, she'd have a day off, likely, before having to play her first-round match in Australia. The question I ask is, would it be better for Kennan to win this tournament, get three more wins under her belt, win her ter- first tour event, make her first final since Roland Garros in 2020, or would it be better for her to lose now and be more well-rested and just be at the whims of wherever she goes in the Australian Open draw? I think it's to win this event, regardless of what that means for her status physically heading into the 2023 Australian Open, because there will be plenty more slams in the career of Sonia Kennan. But the key for her is to get herself back in the mix, back in the top 100 of the rankings, back in the top 50 of the rankings, back confident in herself that week in, week out at the tour level, all the wild cards she's getting will no longer be necessary, but also the wild cards she continues to get, you know, she belongs in those field of players. That's the level she should be competing against. And again, given she has three straight set wins against three top 120 players over the course of these first two weeks, it's how you get yourself in the top 100. And she played a top 10 player in golf extraordinarily close in a 4-4 four and four match. Again, this is an eye test thing as much as anything else. She's in her bag of tricks. She's striking the backhand confidently. She's hitting her forehand down the line so well. The drop shot lob has never gone away. She's moving better. She's serving better. And in fact, you look for Sonia Kennan, the service set. She made 84% of her first serves against Zinevska. She's been over 70 percent in all but her loss to Coco Golf, where she went a little bigger on the serve because she had to try and put some pressure on that golf forehand. I've been really impressed by Sonia Kennan, who, according to the Tennis Abstract singles forecast, is the biggest underdog, 4.9% to win the event. You probably find fun odds on that on DraftKings. In fact, just a little quick tangent here. Let's look at the DraftKings odds because if I can find you guys some winners uh, right now, isn't that my job to do that here at Crack Rackets? I can't find the futures odds right now because the first match is about to get underway, but I bet you can get Kennan around plus 500, and I do it because I do think I test wise she'd look the best. That said, Kalanina, 28, her opponent in the quarterfinals, is the favorite according to Tennis Abstract. 28.9%. Potensiva, 18 Davis, 11 up five. Coachy Reto, 12 1. But everyone's, again, pretty close within one another as you look at the draw in Hobart. Of course, the other ATP event we've got going on. And by the way, again, low ceiling, high floor. All those players are consistent. All those players. I, I just think we're going to get fun grinding hour-and-a-half-plus-style matches in, in, in Hobart. And if we get a Kennan resurgence as well, certainly makes all the action worth following. But the final tour-level event, I want to talk about the ATP action happening in Auckland. It's Cam Norrie's event to lose, according to the eye test. Well, I should say according to the numbers and according to the recent results in eye test. Norrie struggled in a three-set win that had multiple delays against Yuri Lehechka, who 
by the way, looks like a top 50 guy. The serve, the forehand, when he steps up and takes his backhand on the rise as well, he just has top 50 weapons. He's comfortable moving forward. He's not the biggest, but he's gotten quicker, better as a mover. Nori, though, the three-set win. Nori now a 42.7% favorite to win the event. You usually only see that with Novak Djokovic, and that's because Nori's the only seed left remaining as Lazlo Jura knocks out Kasparud 7-6 in the third. Now, again, the match got moved indoors. Lazlo Jura, though, very much under 500 record for his career in tour-level hardcore matches, let alone tour-level hardcore indoor matches. Casper didn't play great. He didn't serve great. He didn't hit the backhand great. He was kind of a little too tentative. He gave Jura too much time to just run around. He didn't play forehand to forehand enough. He clearly hadn't seen the scouting report on Laszlo, who loves, obviously, to run around that forehand on the ad side and isn't as comfortable dealing with pace and heaviness on a quicker surface on that deuce side. You know, again, that said, Laszlo played a really solid match. He hit the backhand extraordinarily well. I thought he mixed in slices and short angles well also. Three out of five is always going to be Rude's bread and butter because of how solid he is over a long sample size, and so I'm not that concerned about Casper following this loss. He didn't play great at United Cup either, but he's got week number one of the enti- of the Australian Open to work his way back into his top form. He made two slam finals last year, and again, three out of five sets, you know physically he's going to be able to answer the question. So I think he has earned the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to read too much into that loss. That said... I mean, again, Nori going to take on former NCAA singles champ out of UCLA, Marcos Giron, Giron 4-4 over J.J. Wolf. Above them, Jensen Brooksby, who got the 6-1 retirement victory from Diego Schwartzman, will take on Quinton Halise, whose pace was just too much for the Shelton forehand to handle. Halise, a 3-2 victory over the former Florida NCAA champ. David Goffin, probably your favorite on the top half via the eye test. He's going to take on Richard Gasquet, a match that would have been awesome in 2014. Goffin, 3-2 in the career head-to-head. Uh, Goffin, straight set winner over Eubanks. Gasquet, straight set winner over Sosa. You then have Leslie Dien versus Jura on the top half. Again, right now, Nori, 42.7% favorite. Then Brooksby, 12-2. Gasquet, 10-8. The lowest is Halise at 5.2%. So, again, it's really Nori versus the field. I want to see Nori take care of business and just remind everyone, hey, I'm a top 10 guy, and these are the sorts of players I have made a living beating. And for what it's worth, you look for Cam Nori over the past year. Not only is he 53 and 23 overall, but against opponents ranked outside the top 20, he's 45 and 13, 78% win percentage, 25 and 4 against not in top 50 opponents, 86% win percentage. So he has beaten who he's supposed to beat. I expect that trend to continue once again this week in Auckland. That said, notable results through the Australian Open qualifying rounds. You look at, again, who has played, and I know final round qualifying is coming up, and I'll try to have Damian Kuzdan, Sons, Daniel Westhoff editing, but we can still make it happen uh, to break down the qualifying results, who's most dangerous depending on where they end up in the draw. But your most notable winners, at least that caught my eye, will start on the women's side. A couple of Americans still alive. I believe we've got six of them. Uh, Katie Valinets, Coco Vandeway, Elizabeth Mandlick, Sasha Vickery, Sophie Chang, who's had a great first two matches, Asia Muhammad as well. Diana Schneider, the incoming freshman for NC State, she's into the final round of qualifying at the Australian Open, and she's already like 106 in the live rankings. She qualifies for the Australian Open with that prize money as well. The option of going to NC State, it just becomes tougher and tougher for her to probably execute on. 
Brenda Fruvertova, uh, a really nice three-set win. She advances. And then uh, how about Bielik, who earns a, a surprising win, the talented 16-year-old from the Czech Republic, over top seed Alicia Parks. Again, Parks has the weapons, finding plan B, finding plan C. That will not def- that will define her ceiling and how quickly she gets to the top 50 because Alicia Parks will at some point be a top 50 player. Uh, the surprising losses, uh, Parks, Magdalena Frich, Alina Gabriela Russa, Ashlyn Kruger. Not surprising that she lost because I think she faced a seed, but she lost 2-0. and That was surprising to me. And then Ann Lee, tough start as she gets knocked out second round of qualifying. On the men's side, Michael Moe, Eduardo Nava, Dennis Kudla, Ernesto Escobedo, Brandon Holt, five Americans advance to the final round of qualifying. You also had a couple of college guys, Alex Vukic, Yannick Hanifman advancing. Shout out to my birthday brother, Juan, uh, Juan Pablo Varias. The most dangerous guys, I think Mo, he's going to be top 100 very, very soon. Just physically, he belongs in the top 100. Stricker, weapons belong in the top 100. Uh, Jerry Shang, the rising talented young teenager from China. He's into the final round of qualifying. Impressive three-set win for him. Strufsen qualifying. He wins his second round match. You had Zizu Bergs, Alex Vukic, Luca Rietti, who everyone tells me is very, very talented. Uh, he's into the final round of qualifying. And then Nicolas Yari, who's just the serve the forehand, their top 100 weapons. He advances. Notable losses. Top seed Alejandro Tabilo knocked off. Michael Emer knocked off. Emilio Gomez, Hugo Gaston, Fernando Verdasco all knocked off. Rodionov, Pissarro also knocked off. But again, we'll dive deeper into qualifying. Who played best? What were the most notable results as soon as those qualifying rounds wrap up? With that said, that's your unedited episode of the Mini Break Podcast, catching up on all things week two, the final and last few practice runs before the 2023 Australian Open kicks off. Of course, I don't have to give a shout out, but I will, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who is enjoying that much-deserved vacation. That said, Great Shot Podcast is where you're going to find all of our Australian Open preview feed. A shout-out, as always, to our friends at Tennis Point for their support. By the way, Great Shot Podcast episodes, not feed, but again, English, whatever. Shout-out to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. We'll have episodes again here, there, every day over the next few days. So rest assured, tennis fans, we're excited for the start of the year's first major. With that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here, at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.